John chapter 17. We've been there for five previous meetings on this subject, and this will be our sixth message on union with Christ. In verse 20, Jesus says, Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. That would include you and I. That, this is the ultimate, this is where we're going. That they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee. That they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you did send me. And the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them that they may be one, even as we are one. That's quite a heady subject, if you ask me. There's a lot of thinking there. If you think about what that says and your mind begins to grasp what this is about or try to, it says a lot. It says, and the glory which you gave me, I've given them. And the purpose of this glory, whatever it is that you've given me, it will cause them, the ones that he has called, to be one. And you'd have to look very hard to find a body of believers anywhere that are in harmony with each other. Everybody seems to have their own view, their own direction, their own ideas, their own interpretations of what is said. And everybody seems to be satisfied with how you see it's good enough for you and who's better than you to tell them what to believe. So there's not a lot of harmony, but there is amongst any group of believers, you'll find certain ones that are flowing in the same direction. Not only do they get along, but they also believe things the same way. There's a work of the Spirit. This is what the Spirit of God does. We look in Ephesians 4 also, the last two or three weeks, where he describes the work that God is doing that makes us one. Ministry, verse 11, he gave to the church, apostles, prophets, and so forth, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of ministering, till we all come, in verse 13, to the unity of the faith, of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, which means the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Coming into such a quality of life through obedience to God, having been refined so much at the end of this walk, that as Jude says, that God finds no fault in you. You stand faultless before his throne amongst us. Maybe not everybody, but there will be some who will. There will be some who will. But too many people won't, but they should. And the opportunity is ours to do it. We're here so we can learn how to do it. God opened my eyes to let me see things. But back to this thing about the glory. I define glory just briefly as this. The glory that Jesus is speaking of, because there's many kinds of glory. There's the glory of a kingdom. Satan said, I'll give you the glory of all these kingdoms if you'll kneel to me or bow to me. But this is a different kind of word glory, this same Greek word glory, but it has a different meaning here. For it's something special. It's something that only Jesus can give. And he doesn't give it to everybody. He only gives it, as John said, he only gives it to those that he calls. And the purpose of what he gives them, this revelation that I call it, this revelation of himself and his divine perfections, the effect that has on us, whets our appetite for more, 
We begin to discover who he is in a dimension we've never seen before. And Jesus becomes more of what he's supposed to be and less of a historical figure in Christmas and Easter. He becomes life. It becomes real. Not everybody's had a revelation like that. You can't just get it. You can't earn it. You can't find it. You can't memorize enough scripture and read enough and give enough to get it. It's all grace. God gives it. And the effect it has upon you is a revelation knowledge of who he is that has such an effect upon you that it determines the rest of your life. You never give it up. You never walk away from it. That's what he gave his disciples. And if you read the story of their lives, from the day he called them, from the day they walked away from their businesses and all that they were doing to just obey him and follow him, even after he died... Their life changed the whole world. Their life, they went into all the world and began to bring the gospel. They joyfully died for what they believed because of the effect that he had on them. And it goes to say, you don't find a lot of that today. Christianity today is pretty much of a soft life. It's a pretty casual life. Come as you are. Come if you please. Do as you will, and if you don't, you know... If you have time to do this, you got a little extra to give, do that too. But we just want you to be happy and have a good time. And nothing like that's in the Bible. Not for Christians. Nothing's like that. This is not a soft life. It's not an easy life. Even Jesus said, many will seek to enter in and will not be able. But to those he gives this glory to, they will. They will do it joyfully. Their whole life is a testimony of something beyond just church. It is a revelation of Jesus Christ, of who he is, and as I said, in his, all of his divine perfections, a revelation knowledge that you never let go of. It'll follow you if you live 40 years, 40 years later, you're just as excited about it in 40 years as you were when you first got it. Your life hasn't gone downhill because a movement slowed down or stopped. It doesn't matter what movements go on in this world. It's a relationship with God, not a movement. And your life is continually in that mode. And you don't depend on other people or wait for other things. It's all about a man and Jesus. And Jesus having such an effect upon the man as he has revealed himself to the man that a man's life is forever and eternally changed. It's a joyful life, even though it's difficult. Now, when we together have such a revelation of Jesus amongst us, the common goal of the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, growing up into him in all things, as Paul wrote, when we have that before us, and we really want that more than anything else, what is there to divide us? Because that becomes a supreme goal. Who he is supersedes what I want or what I think. Everything comes down to Jesus. That's what makes us one. We pull apart when we have our own opinions we won't give up, or our own ideas, or our own unforgiveness, or resentment, or attitude. Whatever it is that makes us withdraw, that's what keeps us apart. Jesus isn't Lord over that area of your life, because whatever revelation you've seen of him, he doesn't get to take care of that too. And we become distant 
oh, we're religious and all of that. We go to church and we do this and that, but we're not what he wants. Now, concerning this glory, back again, just briefly, 2 Corinthians 3. Follow me now. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18. 2 Corinthians 3, the last verse of 2 Corinthians 3. Now, he said in verse 17, the Lord is that spirit. And he says, as we all with open face, beholding as in a glass. Mirror would be a better word because a glass is something that reflects back to you as you look into it. We all with unveiled face, it would say in the Greek, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. What happens as long as you're beholding, what happens? You are being Change. The word change is the same word that was used on the Mount of Transfiguration when it said Jesus was transfigured before them. Changed into another form. Changed the appearance of. What you see has been changed. As we behold, this is a divine process that only God can do, and this is how he does it, and this is why so many people aren't experiencing it. As we behold in a mirror, you got to want to look. And as you begin to look and behold and focus upon what you're seeing being shown back to you, the Bible says, as we behold, we are being changed. No change takes place without beholding. But as we behold, we are being changed in the same, is the word image still in there? The same image. What you see is what God wants you to be like. God has projected in Jesus the kind of man he wants all of us to be, the kind of person he wants us all to be for you ladies. We see in him God's ultimate goal. This is the measure of the stature of the kind of person God wants us to be. Not all the little stories about him and all the little funny things and all. No, it's him, a person. As Christ was in Jesus, the Bible says Christ in you is the hope of glory also. Same God who was in Christ is the same God who makes his habitation in people's lives to do a work in them, to alter their life and to change them. He is the refiner's fire in Malachi 2. He is the one who takes flawed people and refines them so they are so done at the end that he can find no fault in them. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Only God can do that. And it all begins with not only your salvation or your new birth bringing you to Christ, but in putting in your heart a desire to know him. And as you look, he begins to show. And as he begins to show, he begins to excite the life. And you taste and see that the Lord is good. And you want a little more of that. Not everybody does, but somebody does. And so you seek more. Your life begins to change. Things are altered in your life. Things that once were so important, or they pale in the light of what you get in Christ. It's a challenge, to say the least. But we're being changed. That's what he said. Romans 8, 29, we were talking about once, that whom he predestined, he said he is going to change them into the image of Christ. Jesus is not somebody that the Bible is about only. It's about what you're supposed to be like. It's about him. It's not about how to build a church bigger, better, brighter, or how we can do that. It's about becoming. 
It's about living a life that at the end of it, you are counted worthy. That you have shown by your life and your effort that this was the great desire of your heart and you want this. This is a coming forth in you of the very Spirit of God. I think the Bible still says he must increase. I must decrease. Something is happening. And the effect of what is happening is bringing you before God as acceptable to him. And that's what we all want. Now, this divine process in Romans chapter 8, this is the divine process of how God's going to do this and why it doesn't happen to very many people, but it does happen. And for those it does happen to, this, I think, is the way it happens. Romans chapter 8 and verse 17 and 18 to begin with. We finished here last week. Paul said in verse 17, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God. Do we have an inheritance? Do we? The Bible says it. It may not be real to us. It's real to somebody. But the Bible says we're heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ. If, does your Bible have an if in it? Is that a condition? We're joint heirs of Christ if. If so be that we won. Let me read that again, because that doesn't fit this new age that we're in. And as children then heirs, heirs of God, and join heirs with Christ, if. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. Is that what your Bible says? you were selling tapes, how many people would be interested in buying stuff about suffering? But it's there. Can't be denied. You can't alter that to mean something else. It means what it says, suffer. We are heirs of God, and we will reign with Christ as joint heirs with Christ if so be that we suffer with him. But I thought he was dead and raised. I thought he's already gone to heaven at the right hand of God interceding for us. Isn't that right? Well, if he's already in heaven to suffer no more, then how do we suffer with him? If he's already up there and we're down here, how do we suffer with him when he's up there? Or is he still here in a sense? Or in a reality? What time out? Let's see. We're two or more gathered together. We're crowded. No, where two or more are gathered together, he's there. And we sing a song, I serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. I know that he is living no matter what men say. And then the chorus is, he lives, he lives. Where does he live? He lives in your heart. The last stanza where you sing it, the loud, ah, he lives within my heart. Does he? Well, if he's still here and he's in you and he's in our midst, then in what way would we suffer? I mean, how does that advance Christianity for us to suffer? Well, he didn't say here he was trying to advance Christianity. He said he's trying to advance you. Huh. And verse 18 says, and we'll get this a little bit more in a minute. We just juice it up first. For I reckon, Paul said, and he went through a lot, for I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the what that is to be revealed. Whoa, now wait a minute, now wait a minute, time out. Now we're talking about the glory that makes us want. 
And I still believe it's a revelation that we must live with and live according to. A revelation that affects everything about your life. And he says, in living this life, there's a price I'm going to have to pay. Do you think everybody in the world likes your Christian stand? Live it. Speak the truth when you have to speak the truth. Don't cower, but live the life. Do you think people will say, oh, boy, you're a Christian? Call a talk show host one day. Mention Jesus and see how many, <laughs> you Christian right-wingers. They hate him. They hated him then. They hate him today. Jesus said they will hate you. Now, we keep our mouth shut and try to live more of a, an acceptable life. We're loving people so we don't get hated. But we're not trying to get hated either. We don't have to try to make a scene. All we have to do is live what we're taught. That's why we oppose what is taught so much because, well, if we do that, I might lose my job. You might. You very well might. You might not make the team. You might be put out of somebody's company. You might. You probably will. You ought to be. You play with the world, you die with the world. Because if you're going to walk the way he wants you to walk, it means you're going to hold the plow that he gives you to hold, and the field's not cleared out. or stumps and rocks and everything in there that are offensive to your mindset, and people are taught how to get out of this. But some people say, no, no, you can tell me whatever you want to tell me, but I'm going to stay with the word. This is what I've committed myself to do. I know what it's like to grow up in a family with a good reputation and then get saved. I know what it's like. Not only get saved, but speak in, how you say it? Tongues. And then deal with casting out demons. I know what a small community says about somebody that starts doing that who we never had that around here before. I know what people say. I know what mockery and scoffing and scorning is hurled at you if you do that. I know how unpopular you are and how the gossip thing just digs into your skin. But that's necessary for you to overcome that. You don't even know what you believe until you're put to the wall. You don't even know how honest you are until you have a chance to get by with it. You don't know how strong you are until you have to stand. You don't know. A lot of men in this world trying to be tough and trying to establish themselves as, boy, he is something else. They couldn't walk five minutes with Jesus because they lose their praise. God makes sure that when a man walks with him, he is undone. He strips him down to nothing but what God can use. And as long as I deserve and I want, and it's mine, my rights, and me, and my, you can't even make it. We're talking about dying, giving up rights to your life and giving it all to Jesus. But he's not that real. He's not that big to too many people. We've just learned some of the ways of Jesus. We learned a prosperity message. We like that because we like to do well and have a little noise in our pocket. We don't like to give it sometimes. Sometimes he wants you to give it all. The rich young ruler, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Oh, no. No, man. I didn't come here to lose. I come here to get. Well, that's how you get. 
You got to give up your feelings, your attitude, and your manners about money and who you think you are. You got to get rid of all that before you're even acceptable. What? Yeah, I'm going to another church. Go wherever you want to. But that truth will never change. Truth doesn't change with churches. Truth is truth. So this suffering, I reckon, Paul said, that the sufferings of this present time, shipwrecked, snake bit, women run me out of town at night in a basket over a wall, stoned, been beaten with rods. Everywhere I go preach, I have opposition. I'm in peril by day, I'm in peril by night. We got it made in America. Shelby County is one smooth, soft situation. It wouldn't be like that if we lived over the other side of the ocean. Well, your life is in peril probably every day if you stand for Christ. It's a challenge. We can't imagine that yet. Probably will, though. Paul said, I reckon, I account that the sufferings that I'm going through, what I'm experiencing, the price I'm having to pay to live this work, it's not worthy to even be compared with what lies before me at the end of this journey when that city comes into focus and the Lord like this with welcoming arms into the eternal habitations. What I'm headed for and what I get is far better than all I'm going through to get there. But see, those are just words to too many. Those are just words and ideas and not reality yet. But it's going to be like that. Like he said, suffering is going to be in your pathway. I looked up suffering in a dictionary. See if I can get a clear definition of what suffering is, because there's like 11 different Greek words that define suffering. They're all about the same thing. You suffer affliction. You suffer hardship. You suffer reproach. You suffer as evildoers. You suffer persecution. You suffer tribulation. I mean, the word suffer is attached to those words in the New Testament. You think, why do we as Christians have to go through that? Because of a life you're given to live. The same devil that was here when Jesus was here is still here. Demons don't age. They don't have grandkids. They don't get older. They're spirits. They were created. They don't die. They will be in eternal fires, and they will perish with that. But the same devil that was here when Judas was on this earth betraying Jesus, the same demon is still here. Same one. And all of the others like him that are betraying Christ, that are looking for easy way out or how to make money off of Christ and, and how to get fame and fortune by using Christ. They're still here. That thing is still here. Paul came to the place in his own life where he realized this as a blue-blooded Pharisee, chief of Pharisees. He said, I am the least of all saints. I am the chief of sinners. I'm the least of the apostles. I am absolutely nobody. And he said in Philippians chapter 3, I counted a joy to suffer on the behalf of Christ and to be conformed in his fellowship through sufferings. Because something that he knew was greater than what he was feeling. 
pulled his beard out, beat him like a dog in Acts 23, and there he was sitting in a jail cell, probably hurt and pain, just testifying about Jesus. And then Jesus appears to him. Appears to him. Jesus didn't lay hands on him and say, feel better. He didn't heal the wounds. He just appeared to him, and he said, be of good cheer. Be of good cheer. Look where I am. I've lost my job. I've lost my friends. I'm about to get kicked out of the association of hardliners. Be of good cheer. It's like Jesus would say, you're walking the path I gave you. You remember Paul in Acts chapter 9 and verse 22. I said this about you, about Paul. I told that fellow to go pray for you and have your sight restored. And they said, but Lord, he's killing us. He's killing Christians. And Paul said, he is a chosen vessel unto me. And I'm going to show him what great things he must suffer for my name's sake. And the man that God picked to proclaim half of the New Testament didn't put suffering above peace and joy and comfort. He was willing to take whatever came his way. They stoned him last week. They beat him. They dropped rocks on him until his face was whatever. And he got up. God hit him, went up, and walked back into that city. He had a message. He never backed off from it. He never backed off from anybody. He had a message, and they hated him for it, just like they hated Jesus, just like they'll hate us. It's not a message the world likes. The world doesn't like you when you take stands, when you agree with God. They don't like it. Back years ago when I was teaching school, parents were all upset because their children were forfeiting their childhood for this Jesus stuff. A lot of the parents won. A lot of those kids gave it up. Two or three of them didn't. But listen to what a dictionary said. This four or five definition. Let me give you at least a couple of them. One, the state or experience of one that suffers. Well, you're suffering. Another one is to undergo or to experience. And then the one that works for us this morning, a definition of what we mean by suffering, to put up with, especially as inevitable or unavoidable. To put up with. To put up with is a choice. You've got to make that choice. You're going to have to realize that if you live what he said, just read the Sermon on the Mount. If you live that, you're going to be hammered for it. And you've got to be willing to accept that as the price you pay for getting to walk with Jesus. And the suffering that comes your way, he said, it's not you they hate. It's me they hate. You're only getting what they did to me. You're letting me be Lord of your life and rule your life. What's happening to you was aimed at me. You're just being a loyal, faithful servant, and you're suffering for it. That's what he said. The Bible shows us several examples of suffering that's better than just a definition. I'd like to take you through a little journey in the New Testament of several passages of Scripture where suffering is used, and I want you to note the context and the effect of it. Turn to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 2 and Hebrews chapter 5. Now, we're looking at the word suffering, how suffering relates to the glory that was given to us and how that glory makes us one. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 10. Speaking of Jesus... For it became him, it means it was fitting, it was proper, necessary. 
It was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory. That would be us in the salvation experience. In bringing many saints to glory. That God, in having him like that, he said, to make the captain of their salvation perfect, how? Let me ask you a question. Did Jesus suffer? Did he quit? Did he turn back? Did he justify? Did he defend? He's like a lamb led to slaughter, wasn't he? He spoke not a word. He left his defense up to God. Jesus did. That's who we aspire to be like. But God said it was necessary for us that God, in order to bring us to himself into that place of glory that is set up there waiting for us, to take the one who was going to make it possible to perfect him. That doesn't sound right when you talk about Jesus. To perfect, or he was made perfect through suffering. Perfect, just think of perfect as being brought to fulfillment. He was already perfect in his character and his moral life. The word perfect here means that he was brought to the completed place he was assigned to come to through sufferings. He could not become our Savior. He could not be what he was supposed to be without paying a price to be that. What did he pray in the garden? Lord, if it be possible, take this cup from me. It was not easy. It was difficult being a stone's throw from his disciples. We see him praying in the garden in earnest. The Greek words are more intense. Such stress and strain that sweat and blood came through his skin. I'd say that was pretty stressful. Blood popped through his skin and mingled, and it was shed his first shedding of his blood was right there where he was praying in a time of prayer. And he goes to his disciples, pray with me. And he goes back and pray, can't you pray, pray? And then when he got through, he walked out of there. But there was something in front of him that he knew he had to go through. He could not avoid it. It had to be. In order for us to be able to make it to heaven, he had to do this. Now, the discomfort, the shame, didn't it say he hated, despised the shame? Hanging on a cross, not with the little Catholic linen thing. I mean, he hanged there as he was born. Shameful. I mean, you just had to turn your head. Despising the shame. He endured the cross. Why? Because of the joy that was set before him. That's you. Can you imagine the joy of making salvation possible for people that don't even love him? People that are hanging out in bars or acting stupid? And he died for them, seated on his throne, and God says, now I'm going to present Jesus to a lost world as a Savior. And to those who respond, I'm going to draw them closer to me, and so they can become acquainted with him, begin to know him, and this knowledge is going to change their life for the rest of their life. They'll never be the same again. A lot of people are going to say, who is that Jesus? Tell me something about him. Oh, oh, sing them over again. And they become very religious. They have all the appearance of this. They do this. They speak in tongues. A lot of them do. But they never know him. Never know him. 
Too many places to go, too many things to do, too much fun to have. Suffering? I'm not going to that place. Rejected? Oh, no, I'm going to justify. Yeah, Jesus said, I showed you the way to go. This is the way I had to make it, and don't think you can make it without that happening. Because everybody I choose, I'm going to unzip you and play like this. You know. I'm going to climb inside of Levi. I'm going to zip him up. It looks like Levi. It sounds like Levi. <laughs> but as Levi decreases, who increases? Christ in you is the hope of glory. Oh, when you get to the cross in just a moment, I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live yet. Not Levi. People in the world don't know who Levi is. We might have you turn around and look at him. No longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And I joyfully undertake all the struggles, all the suffering, all the discomfort, all the right choices I have to make which cost me. I'm willing to do it because I have had a revelation of Jesus Christ that supersedes everything else I've ever heard of. But what I just said, I could, we could go home. Some people are there, some people aren't. If you've never had that, you need to pray for that. That God would take you beyond a religious attitude. To quit thinking that my little bit that I do or what little bit I've done is enough and I'm worthy. Well, you're never going to be worthy, but you've got to be accounted worthy. You're accounted worthy because of the life you choose to live and the way he wants you to live. Look at Hebrews 5 and verse 8. Jesus was made perfect through sufferings. That don't sound right, but it's in there. Because he had to go through what he went through to prove. You think Jesus had to prove he was Savior? That he was who he was? Though he were a son, look at verse 8. Though he were a son, was he a son? Of course he was. Yet learned he, does your Bible say obedience? How can this be? Yet learned he obedience, how? By the things that he suffered. That is a lot. That says a whole lot. This is the one we're supposed to be one with. The one who learned obedience. Do we have to learn obedience? What keeps you from obeying the Lord? All of you, every one of us, us and you. What keeps us from obeying the Lord? Rebellion. If you will admit it, you can deal with it. If you won't admit it, then you'll never deal with it. We don't do what he says because we don't want to. I don't want to live like that. I don't want to make that choice. I don't want to not wear that. I don't want to not look that way. I don't want to not, I don't want to, I don't want to. I want what I want. But what you want is going to cause him to have to judge you. No, he won't. He's a loving God. He won't do that. Well, he will. It's a rebellious nature. Jesus was never rebellious, but he showed us how to live this life. He showed us how it works. He studied, he prayed, he loved, he cared, he ministered, and he died. An acceptable sacrifice unto God, sufficient to save everybody in the world who would ever believe in him. Not just save us, but transform us. Remember that? Transformed? 
That's what he's come to do. We have to deal with so many things in a church because transformation is not working. It's not an experience in people's lives. We're just religious. We're going different directions. We have different attitudes. That's why we fuss and argue and yap and talk. No surrender. That's why. No revelation. He's never walked into somebody's life, never knocked on the door. Never had the door open to come in and manifest himself to somebody to where you go, whoa. Remember what Job said when he saw who he was? Job said, I have heard of you. But he said, I've heard of you with the hearing of my ear. But now, oh, man, I see who you are, and I repent in dust and ashes. Man, I have missed the whole mark here. I was a very religious man. Everybody said I was perfect, but I was, whew, boy, I see, oh, man. And his life was so changed, and everything went better after that. You don't find people who walk with Jesus, not even in countries where they're martyrs, who suffer martyrdom. You don't find them complaining. You don't read in the book of Hebrews chapter 11 about the ones who died because of their testimony complaining about dying. It ain't fair. You didn't find them in Revelation chapter 2 when Jesus said, you be faithful unto death. You didn't hear him say, well, the Philadelphia church, you didn't say that to them. You don't find them fighting, arguing, trying to compare themselves with others, defending. You don't see that. Just praise the Lord. It's just part of what God is doing to change my life, to make me the way he wants me to be. And I can't get there without this process. Turn to Philippians 1 and those expensive books you're holding in your laps. Philippians chapter 1. One day in your life before it's over, when you've saved up enough money that you can do it, Buy a really good Bible. Leather cover. Get a really good one. Then you won't leave it anywhere. Then you'll take it with you. And you'll read it as something that you had to pay good money for this book. This book is a treasure. I'm going to read this book and keep this book with me. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 29. For he said, you have had this privilege granted to you on the behalf of Christ. Not only to believe in him, but also to prosper in him. See, isn't that good? You not only get to believe in him, but you get to prosper. Well, you do. You do. But that isn't what it said. It is not only given us on behalf of Christ to believe in him, but also to what? Suffer. Undergo hardship. Be rejected. Persecuted. Second Timothy... All that live godly in Christ Jesus shall what? Suffer. Suffer what? Why? Because you live in a world of darkness that hates light. Don't you know that? This is the testimony that Jesus had, that light has come into the world, and the world hates light. The world lies in darkness. When you become a light, when you're a reflector, the outshining, can I use my word again? The effulgence of God. It's in there. You can't spell it, but it's in there. The outraying of God. You are ambassadors of Christ. Like Moses in the mount when he was there with God, he had to veil his face when he came down because he too was shining. You become his ambassadors. 
And you come into the world with all the right solutions to a crooked world, and they hate you for it. They hate you for it. They whisper behind your back. Some of them wish you were dead. We could just get rid of those people. Well, one day the Lord will come at an hour they think not, and he'll get rid of them. Now, most of the church world won't know they're gone until they go to church and wonder where these hardheads are. Where'd they go? The world won't know it. When the rapture comes, the ones who go won't even be missed by most people. They'll just notice eventually that those hardliners are not here. Where are they? They're gone. Where'd they go? I don't know, but there are reports around the world that people like that are gone. Where'd they go? Then the preacher will stand up and you talk about end time deception. The preacher will say, look, somebody said this is a rapture. There is no such thing as a rapture. God probably took these troublemakers out of our midst and that's their judgment. We're all right with the Lord. And in the end time, that's the kind of religious atmosphere that comes because when the Antichrist comes, these people will bow to him. They'll take the mark of the beast. They'll all die. But some won't. There are some people who crave, desire in earnest, yearn for a clear picture of Jesus, a picture that has such a profound effect on my life that it forever changes me. Now, Paul wrote, he said, you preachers, there's three good points here. Grace, it is given. It is given to you. Not everybody, but it's given to you. This is a divine privilege. Not only to believe on him. That's an opportunity. Believing is something that comes from the Lord for a purpose. Do you know that? There's a reason for believing. Let me tell you what it is because I like sidetracks. Receiving the end of your faith. 1 Peter 1. Receiving the end of your faith. The salvation of your soul. You won't need faith in heaven. But you need it right now. Because you've got to believe. Because you can't see. You've got to believe. It's not only given to us to believe in him, but also, as a result, to suffer. That's what suffering is. Go to 2 Thessalonians, chapter 1 and verse 5. Talking of persecution and suffering and difficulty here. He says, which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God. Then this part, that... For those of you that are standing your ground, being persecuted for, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which also you suffer. You're standing there taking all this abuse and all this gossip, being rejected, and your kids will suffer with you. Take it as a truth from me. They will suffer with you, especially as they're growing up and they want to have approval of their peers and suddenly their dad is being talked about or their uncle or the church are in. And you're aligned with them. Whew. It's tough because it's harder for them to make a decision without a revelation than it was for you with a revelation. It's the price you pay. You want to preach the whole counsel of God? You think you're a preacher? If you're not going to preach at all, then have the decency not to preach at all. You either stand for something or you're nothing. Without convictions, you are nothing. You're just a wishy-washy, blow with the breeze, every wind of doctrine person, and you're lost. If you're going to stand on two feet, stand there because God puts you on solid rock. 
that he establishes you're going and puts a new song in your mouth and sing it. If it costs you all the glory of this world, fine. Because my pursuit is not the gaining of all this world, but the kingdom of heaven. And he said, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom for which you suffer. Go over two books to the right to 2 Timothy. Look at chapter 3. I mentioned it a while ago. Let's look at it. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 11. Persecutions, afflictions which came to me at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra. What persecutions I finally got out of. What persecutions he said I endured. But out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yea, and all that will live godly. Now the word godly, Eusebia, means a right and true relationship with God. All that will live that way shall what? Suffer. You take people that live that way. They could be different colors, different genders, different nationalities. They could be different whatevers. You take people that have one common experience in their life, living for Jesus and suffering for it, and nothing divides them. Look at the early church. On the day of Pentecost, what do you have? One accord. Paul spoke of being like-minded, in agreement. It's got to happen that way. It has to be that. This is what's going to make Ephesians 5.27 a glorious church without spot, wrinkle, or any such thing. Suffering saints, the scorn of this world, the rejects of this world, the ones they laugh at, the ones that Nero put on a tree and burn them to death, those are the kinds of people that Jesus saved and inhabits heaven, not the pretty people in this world who are trying their best to do it their way and to avoid all this harassment. It's going to cost us all. What persecutions, he said, I endured in verse 11. But probably the one of the main verses is 1 Peter 4. If you go back to the back, 1 Peter chapter 4, there's so much in the Bible about suffering, but this just happens to be one of those that we probably can understand as easy as any of these verses or as much. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 12. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trials which are to test you as though something unusual or strange has happened to you. But rejoice. Rejoice. Rejoice inasmuch as you are partaker of what? Listen to me all over again. You've heard this. I hope you heard for 40 years. What's the purpose of trials? It's James chapter 1. Count it all joy when you encounter various diverse kinds of trials, knowing this, that the testing of your faith worketh patience or endurance, and let endurance have its perfect work, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. That's what we're talking about. It takes trials for you to prove that you're willing to go that way. Anybody can preach trials and talk about it and take notes about it and sing songs about it. But it's doing it that you prove yourself. I won't quit. 
you see. I'm not backing off. I'm not giving in. I'm not compromising my testimony. I'm not going to try to defend myself and make excuses. I am going to stay with what I heard. Now, if I'm wrong, then I'll be corrected. It doesn't matter. I'm going to do this right. That's what Jesus went through. First Peter 4, he said, thinking not strange concerning the fiery trials, which are to try you like something strange has happened to you. But rejoice in as much as you are a partaker of Christ's sufferings. What comes of this? What is the result of these sufferings? Finish the verse. That when his what? Is the word glory in that verse? Well, do you see a connection then as thinking people between the word and the idea of suffering and his glory? Do you see a connection? And that the one who is involved in these sufferings, these divinely ordained tests that you have to go through to prove yourself, God's going to be justified when he saves you. Not because you said you believe like most of you. You're going to show you believe. And God's going to prove that you believe. And he won't let the trial be more than you can handle. He's in charge of even the trial. And he said that Christ arranges these things and there's a work going on in you and you're going to die every day because Christ in you is putting to death all the stuff that he has to judge so that when he's done, he don't have to judge anything in your life. It's a glory that comes forth. Who is that glory? It's Christ. Isn't he the one that's going to be revealed in you? Isn't he? Is not Christ the glory of God? Didn't he say in 2 Corinthians 4 about the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ? He is God's message of glory. And a revelation of him, as I said, is what changes lives. Not religious sermons and not all the things that we do to try to make it right. Thank God for all the things that we do. But Christianity truly and sincerely is, without sounding elitist or anything, it is a deeper life. It is a life you're challenged to live. Not many will. Many will seek to enter in, but mm -mm, ain't going that far. And they won't make it. They won't make it. They could. They won't. They should. But they won't. And... He said in verse 13, rejoice inasmuch as you are a partaker of Christ's sufferings. How's that? Is not you following Christ causing you to suffer? Are they not hating him for the way you live? It's him suffering in you. You are being conformed to his image through sufferings, and those sufferings are assigned to you in this life in order for you to make it. You read that in Colossians. That's another subject. But he said, these things that you're going through, these things that you're dealing with, these things that you're fighting are all part of his plan. Fiery trials. Fiery trials is Psalm 66.10. It's Malachi 2. It's Proverbs 17.3 and Proverbs 25.4. The furnace of affliction and the refiner and what he's bringing forth out of that furnace. Something God wants that you don't have until you go through this. You got to do that to get this. You can't get gold out of ore unless you put the heat to the ore and melt it down, get the scum out of it, then it comes forth as pure gold. How many want to do that? Not many, because it costs too much. It's just too much of a harassment in their life, I suppose. 
this same book, chapter 5 and verse 10 across the page there, but the God of all grace who has called us into his eternal glory in Christ Jesus after, after what? After that you have suffered a while, what will he then do in full completion? He will perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. Only he can. But he does that because you are willing to walk with him. Now, as we commence closing, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Because this says a whole lot. Let me read verse 4. In whom the God of this world has blinded the minds of them who believe not, lest... The light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. That's the revelation I'm talking about. But we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for his sake. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts, that's the revelation, to give you the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, which is what? Which is in the face of Jesus Christ. And he goes on to say, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. What is this treasure? All that Jesus is revealed to us to be and all that he is, is in you as a seed. It's a treasure. It is the potential power that rests in every true believer, that everything you'll ever need is right here. You let it grow. All the fruits, whatever gifts, strength, might, it's all in Jesus. Nothing's left out. You can suppress that and say, well, I don't want to do that. Well, I don't see it that way. You can suppress it if you want to and never experience it. Or you can just simply die and yield to it and let it be and let him bring it forth. Notice he goes on in verse 8. We are troubled on every side. Now, here comes the suffering. We got the treasure. Now, we got to get it out. We got to break the vessel. Are you with me? We have to break the vessel because in the vessel is the treasure. We got to break the vessel so the treasure can come forth. So, we are troubled. We are troubled on every side. It means to compress we are perplexed. We don't even know how to go forth sometimes. What's going on? That's what he said. We're troubled on every side, but we're not distressed. We're perplexed, but we're not in despair. Let me read it from a translation. Troubles are round us on every side, but we are not shut in. Things are hard for us, but we see a way out of them. I like that. Verse 9, persecuted but not forsaken, cast down but not destroyed. Who's doing this to us? The world. Can we get out of this? Turn around. Go back the way you used to live, and this won't happen anymore. You can avoid being singled out in a crowd for persecution and maladies. Just don't talk about Jesus. Don't live the life, and your buddies in the world will accept you. You can be cool. You want to be cool? Be like the world. You'll be cool. Then you'll be hot. But anyway, verse 9, let me read this from the Williams translation. Always being persecuted but not deserted. Always getting a knockdown but never a knockout. I like it. Why? 
We're putting up with this. We know this is what it's going to cost us because we have been taught this. If you've never been taught, you'll think it's strange. Listen to the philosophy of this age that you young folks are in. Well, now, why would God want us to be persecuted and cast down and, and rejected by society? How are we going to win society being rejected by it? No, here's what you do. You dress like them. You go to church like they go to the bar. In your shabby old clothes, in your half-decent look. You just do that. That's the way they would do it. Listen to their music and make Christian music sound like that. And then win them all to Christ. Right. They just assume you're one of them. Because you are. You're deceived. Amen. Bear with me. We're trying to. All right. Verse 10 is the cross. It stands in the middle of everybody's walk. At least once is a cross. A voice, not actually a verbal heard voice, but an impression comes to you at least once in your life in church. You can't do that and be a Christian. You hear that. You can't do that and be a Christian. You can't act that way and call yourself a Christian. You can't be involved in that kind of stuff and be a Christian. You can't talk like that and use those words and be a Christian. You hear that. Which means what? If you want to be a Christian, you have to stop all of that. But this is the way I've been my whole life. So what do you do with the way I've been my whole life, but it's going to cost me heaven? You crucify it. You crucify it. Always bearing about, he said in verse 10, always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus. Well, he's not dying, you're dying. He's putting to death all your ways by a revelation of what he says, don't do it. And when you yield to him, guess what? You're dying. Paul said, we die daily. Because in response to Christ and his divine right ways, we give up rights to our life and we stop that stuff and we begin to die. It's Matthew chapter 10. It says, unless you take up your cross daily, you are unworthy of the kingdom of God. That's a strong statement. I mean, he wants us his way on his terms. Christianity is living your life on his terms. I've said that a thousand times, and I'm not done saying it, because that's the way it's going to be. That's what he wants. After you've suffered a little while, he says, Christ will perfect you. You remember that? Then could we say that it's ever the will of God that you suffer? Is there a verse in the Bible that says, let those who suffer according to the will of God? If there's one verse that says that, I know you might find it back in 1 Peter 419, it might be there. But if it is there, you got to know that it is God's will for a lot of us in various ways, depending on what kind of life we live and what kind of person we are, that in order to get rid of stuff, we, we're going to have to suffer. Maybe it's in 1 Peter 2, verse 17 to 21. Maybe somewhere along in there. I don't know. You know, you all could find that. But this is what it's about. Now, the glory that is in the face of Jesus 
And it was God who revealed Jesus to the world as his glorious son. And Jesus revealed himself to his people. And they knew who he was. They learned who he was. And their lives never went back. Can that work with us the same way? All right. In closing, John 14. This is the role that faith will play. I think you've heard the word faith before here. We don't preach on it near enough. Not even near enough. Somebody once said to me, you preach on faith too much. If you're not careful, you'll try to prove that, no, I don't. I'm going to quit preaching on it. So they will like you. Well, that's not the way it works. If I preach on faith too much, it probably means we haven't got it yet. Faith is being faithful, being doers and not hearers. Faith is keeping. Faith is walking. Faith is submitting to God, being faithful to his revelation. John 14 and verse 21, and we're about ready to close. I'm sorry to say that, but he says in John 14, verse 21, and he that hath my commandments and keepeth them. Now that's faith. That's being faithful. He is the one that loves me. If I use the word commitment, he's the one who's committed to me. He loves me. And if a man loves me, who else will love him? The father will love him. And I will love him. And what else? I will manifest myself to him. Does your Bible say that? What kind of a revelation then would that be? You're a new Christian. You're trying to live the Christian life. Somebody told you the word is supreme in your life. So you start listening. You start going to church. and You start paying attention. So God sends his spirit. His spirit begins to affect you because you're different. You're different. You got a different way of looking. You're different. So his spirit begins to capture your affections and you begin to read this Bible with interest. You begin to want these things. You begin to make some changes in your life. And what did God say would happen to you if you're willing to keep his word? What does it say? That he will manifest myself to you. Now that word manifest means to make apparent. So that that person can truly say, not what he read in a book or what he heard in a sermon, but that person can say, I know. I know in whom I have believed. I've never seen his face physically. I've never heard his voice. I've never seen the tune that was rolled away. I probably will before too long. About a month. There's probably got a Coke machine beside it now. But... I've never had a physical relationship with Jesus. How then can words in a Bible have such a dramatic effect on your life? Faith. That very subtle work that God brings into those people who are his, and they change. He said, I will cause them, in Ezekiel 11, I will cause them to walk in my ways. You thought you were just had a good salvation experience and you just really want this. God put that in there. He's got a plan for your life. It's going to cost you all your fun and games. You're all excited now. You're climbing the wall wanting to tell the world about Jesus. <laughs> and the persecution's coming. 
Then you'd be sitting down and say, what, uh, time out, what's going on, Lord? He said, kingdom. The kingdom. Somebody called me, they do this a lot on the phone. What's going on? I said, the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. But he said, I will manifest myself to him. And look at verse 23, and we'll come to close. Jesus answered and said unto him, if any man, he said this to Judas now, if any man love me, he will what? Boy, that's a sermon, isn't it? If somebody asked us on the street, do you love the Lord? You'd say yes. You love Jesus? I do. Remember when Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? What did Peter say? I like you. I've already proved I don't love you because I'm more committed to my well-being than I am being a martyr. I denied you three times. I curse knowing you. I can't say here because I got a crowd. I love the Lord. I, I like you, Lord. I love being with you, and I want to love you. And Jesus said, one day you will. You'll die for me. That's how committed you'll be to me. You're not there yet, but you will be. I chose you while you're like you are, but I'm going to make you the way I want you to be. Again, he says, if, if any man loves me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. Folks, this is union. This is divine fellowship. This is oneness. If this is happening in anybody's life in this church, and it's happening in anybody else's life. Everybody this is happening with, I guarantee these folks can fellowship. They will get along. And the one thing that they all talk about is Jesus and how he solves their problems. Amen. It's not the latest anything. It's not whether the cloud of dust in Europe is going to fade. Or whether Obama is the Antichrist. It's all about Jesus. Let the world do what they do. I don't know who Caesar is right now. I know who's on the throne of my life. Oneness. One. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray that you would lead us continually as you're showing us in your Bible you want us to go to be like Jesus. Dear God, that is so easy to say. It's so easy to talk about. It's so easy to study that. But our life betrays us, Lord. Our choices betray us. We clamor about so much. We dig about so much stuff. We whine and cry about so many things. Lord, we're still like little children. We're still being tossed this way and that way by every little emotional whim that comes our way. You told us in that gospel, Lord, that our momentary light afflictions work in us a far greater weight of glory than we even realize. Help us to be still. Give us that urge and that urgency and that zeal to want to be like Jesus. Lord, these are your people. They're not mine. They're yours. I'm one of them. We are the sheep in your pasture. There's a lot of work that needs to happen in each one of us. And we appeal to you this morning as your children. 
to never leave us alone, but finish the work you've started. And we ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen.